Hello, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Edward Whelan. Ed Whelan is a distinguished senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and holds EPPC's Antonin Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies. He's the longest serving president in the organization's history, having held that position for close to 17 years. He also is a former clerk of the late Justice Antonin Scalia and has authored and co-authored three books entitled Scalia Speaks, On Faith, and most recently, The Essential Scalia. During this podcast, we discuss the importance of originalism in law, Justice Antonin Scalia's impact on society, and the importance of respectful disagreement in the current day. As always, thank you very much for listening to the podcast, and if you wish to support it, please, you can uh, visit the Inquiring Mind podcast website, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, as well as subscribe on YouTube, or wherever you listen to the audio version, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else. Thank you again for your ongoing support. So now, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Edward Whelan. Edward Whelan, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. I have two of three of the books that you helped edit. Right here is the most recent, if I'm not mistaken, The Essential Scalia. And then I have this one, Scalia Speaks. Uh, before we get started and we start talking about you know, Justice Scalia and why you wrote these books, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I suppose uh, most relevant to these books is that I am a former law clerk to Justice Scalia. I uh, clerked for him 30 years ago now. It's hard to believe. Uh, and it was a, one of the great uh, uh, honors of my life. I have worked in, in and out of government, uh, including in the Department of Justice uh, in the George W. Bush administration and uh, as uh, for the Senate Judiciary Committee um, during uh, the, the, the Clinton presidency. And uh, for 17 years, I headed the Ethics and Public Policy Center where I'm still affiliated. I stepped down from the presidency there in February, and uh, I'm now in my uh, capacity as a uh, distinguished senior fellow and Anthony Scalia Chair in Constitutional Studies. Wonderful. Uh, so again, before we get into the books, uh, how did you? What what first appealed to you about the law, and why did you decide to go into the legal profession? Boy, that's a good question. I sometimes wonder, well, you know, whether I should have pursued some other career. But um, I think I, my my mind is always inclined to uh, making distinctions and uh, trying to reason things out. Um, perhaps uh, family members would say always argue, um, but uh, I think I had a a, a natural bent for it. Um, I, I, a fondness for. Um, studying text and working my way through it. And uh, I suppose I always found it uh, you know, relatively uh, uh, easy, I suppose, compared, say, to things like music or design or a host of other things that I'm not very good at. Mm. 
I I have personal aspirations of being a, a lawyer, and every time I've spoken to a lawyer, they always tell me the same thing: don't be a lawyer, uh, don't go into this profession. And <clears throat> I guess part of me is a little cynical in thinking that they don't want extra competition. But um, the other side, did you ever consider leaving the law, or or did you stick it out? Well, in a sense, I did leave the law, um, you know, 17 years ago when I moved into the think tank world. I'm not, I'm not a practicing lawyer. Uh, I instead am, you know, writing about the law, drawing on my on my um, legal background and on legal skills, but I'm not working as a lawyer. But no, I at one point, uh, uh, even in law school, went through the whole uh, foreign service process and and thought seriously about that. Um, so look, I think. Uh, one reason people, um, I think, recommend to you and others um, not to become a lawyer is too many people do it as a default for, for want of imagination. Um, and, you know, I may have been guilty of that as well. And I think it's something that um, it's better to try something else first. And then uh, if, you, if you remain uh, very interested in going to law school, uh, I think you'd be more, more confident about it when you've tried something else. My impression back when I was in law school is that the unhappiest Law students were those who had gone straight through from college without doing anything else, uh, and I think that speaks to the the, the value of of, of um, yeah whether it's pursuing a career or studying uh, doing something after college. Mm -hmm. And you just spoke about the fact that you uh, were thinking about the foreign service route. Why didn't you end up going down that route? Ah. Uh, Gosh, lots of different reasons. I was, you know, I, I had already gone through law school when I, or was in law school when I explored that. It was something of a lark. So I'd always been interested in international affairs. I think in the end, I decided, I realized that the foreign service would have been a great thing to do in the 1950s. Um, but that uh, technology, uh, advanced communications, other things made it a much less interesting job in, the, in what would have been the 1980s or 90s. Mm -hmm. um, well, these books were that I mentioned earlier were, were fantastic. I, I really enjoyed them. Uh, you guys did a really good job in compiling the speeches in one book and then, you know, uh, targeting the, the newest book to, to aspiring lawyers or, or people that are lawyers already. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier that you got to clerk for Justice Scalia uh, 30 years ago now. Uh, what was that experience like? Well, I, I and my law clerk, my, my co-clerks rather, I think learned so much just by being in proximity to Justice Scalia, by having him challenge us, whether um, uh, orally in questions when we meet or um, working on our drafts. And we really uh, had the opportunity to try to, you know, to try to learn to think like him. Uh, and, you know, we, we sometimes said we thought we had the hardest uh, uh, job on the uh, among the clerks in one sense, in that um, for for many clerks it was just a matter of figuring out um, which way their boss wanted to go and to write things up. For us, we knew we had to get it right, and that if uh, if we wrote up something up that even if it uh, reached the result that Justice Scalia tentatively thought that he wanted, if it didn't write well, if it didn't go here, if it didn't persuade, it'd be back to square one. Uh, and you know he would he would often uh, you know reconsider his positions. He would say. You know, uh, sometimes in disappointment, it doesn't write. 
which was his his way of saying, you know, when we see it, when we see it in written form, it just doesn't work, and that's you know tells you that you need to go back and, and revisit your intuitions about a case. And what what would you say are some of the most important lessons you learned from Justice Scalia? Oh boy. Uh, I think um, one lesson, and this comes out in one of the speeches in, in Scalia Speaks, is that uh, good writing requires hard work. Uh, many people um, admire Justice's, Justice Scalia's um, writing as they should, uh, but they think that perhaps writing uh, came easily to, to him. Uh, he um, liked to uh, say, I think he's quoting, I don't know, Dorothy Parker, that he did not enjoy writing he enjoyed having written. And for him, uh, writing is something that uh, consumed his entire attention. Every word matters. Uh, a good writer has to uh, be able to stand outside himself and, and see how other people would read what he's written. It's not enough to, you know what, what, what you mean to say. It has to be um, clear to uh, others reading it. And uh, you need to be able to uh, challenge your own ideas and make sure that, that uh, uh, what, what you're writing um, is, is sound. So uh, again, that's a discipline that requires um, hard work. Uh, certainly when it comes to uh, judging, um, you know, a lesson that I learned from, from Justice Scalia is you need to uh, discern the proper principles and apply them uh, neutrally and impartially. Um, whether or not that gets you, um, uh, you know, the policy results uh, you would want. I think that's a, you know, a very important lesson about the role of the judiciary, um, you know, in, in, in the American system. Mm -hmm. uh, before we go into what Scalia, Justice Scalia would, you know, uh, the, the topic of originalism and, and textualism and all that, I wanted to ask, maybe this is a question that's going to shoot me in the foot and uh, it's just personal curiosity. Do you think that the legal profession is an elitist profession in some ways? Because a lot of to, to, to clerk for some of the justices, you have you need to have attended Harvard Law School or Yale or whatnot. What would you say is the reason for that? And do you think it's justified? Well, you know, the word um, elitism can cover a lot of things, um, some uh, bad, uh, some, um, I would say, good, uh, insofar as elitism involves um, sorting out on the basis of merit um, uh, those who have demonstrated their talent um, from those who haven't, it's good. Uh, but as you're um, I think question rightly um, raises, um, you know, there, there are many judges and justices who uh, understandably, but imperfectly use a um, law student's law school as a proxy for the, for the student's ability. And uh, certainly students at Harvard and Yale benefit a lot from that. Now, um, you know, pardon me for saying that you overstate things a little bit. I mean, certainly there are, are law clerks from students from other places who, um, who get um, excellent law clerks, including at the Supreme Court. But you know, numerically, um, there's no doubt that um, uh, law students at Yale and Harvard have had an advantage. 
And I think there's a certain uh, you know, clubbiness that, that can explain that. Um, it's also just a matter of, uh, I, I think from the justice's perspective, they're gonna be playing it safe. Uh, they have very little information on which to base a judgment. And I think they're uh, inclined to think that if you um, did well enough to get into a, a very good school and got good grades there, um, chances are you're gonna be a pretty good clerk. Um, might they miss out on uh, equally talented or more talented uh, candidates as a result? Sure, um, but that's, you know, that's the, uh, there are always trade-offs in, in how you go about, um, uh, you know, making personnel decisions. Yeah, this, this topic piqued my interest once. I was listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast and he was talking about Justice Scalia and he had a clip of um, Scalia, I forgot, oh, speaking at the American University, I believe. And this woman stands up and asks him, would it be possible that I could become one of your clerks? And he all but says no, because he says, you know, I can't afford to be wrong. Uh, so I get people from Harvard and, and some of the, you know, the best schools, but, uh, I'm sorry if I'm, if you want to say something, but just, uh, the interesting thing about that is he then goes on to say that one of his favorite clerks is, uh, judge Jeffrey Sutton, who attended Ohio university, Ohio so, state, Ohio state, uh, law school, right. Law school, yeah. And how do you <laughs> add those up? Well, uh, Judge Sutton, uh, as, as you know, is, is, was my co-editor on The Essential Scalia, uh, is a, a good friend of mine. We clerked together. Uh, uh, it's, you know, one way to, to, to reconcile this is that um, Judge Sutton actually was a law clerk for retired Justice Powell. Uh, and law clerks for retired justices can sort of shop around and and offer their, their, their extra time for, for sitting justices. So um, the fact of the matter is Justice Scalia did not hire um, uh, Jeff Sutton through the regular processes, but um, you know, as, as he observed was uh, uh, delighted by um, Jeff's um, excellent work and uh, Jeff is a, is, is, a, is a great judge. But I think um, you know, his principle of just um, look, playing it safe um, is one that is, uh, understandable, um, uh, you know, if uh, regrettable in some of its effects. Um, sometimes when we approach public figures, you know, whether it be celebrities or judges, we, we always focus on their work and again, rightfully so, but we kind of forget sometimes that there is a, there's a person behind the public figure. Uh, so I want to start talking about Scalia by asking, what was he like as a person? Well, he was a remarkably uh, gregarious, engaging person. I think he enjoyed um, meeting people uh, and, uh, you know, really um, would enjoy good conversation with just about anyone. He had what, I guess, in, in olden days, you could say uh, was a bit of a Latin temperament, uh, maybe, um, uh, one's not permitted, maybe that's an un unacceptable stereotype these days. If so, I apologize. But the, what the phrase uh, used to uh, at least connote is someone who uh, could have something of a temper, but then would blow past it uh, and you know, might be singing in the hallways uh, not long thereafter. Uh, I think that, uh, that captures um, some of him. Uh, 
you know, he loved, uh, he had passions for, um, you know, opera, a squash, um, you know, good books, uh, and conversation, good eating, good wine. Uh, see, he, 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 um, he really loved life, loved his family. Um, you know, he had uh, a wonderful marriage and uh, nine kids. And at the time of his death, um, I, I believe uh, the grandkids numbered in the mid thirties and the numbers gone up uh, since then. That's incredible. Um, I think like a lot of people that um, are my age, if you came around to Scalia's work, you, you, you know, saw his speeches somewhere on YouTube and you were enthralled for an hour and a half by something he was saying and the way he spoke, because he was a, he was a wonderful speaker. Uh, what separates, I think him and a lot of judges is the fact that you, we do have all of a lot of his speeches as public domain and, and it's available, obviously you, you know, in, in the written form and in the video form. Uh, why do you think it was so important to him to visit college campuses, different organizations, and make so many media appearances? Well, uh, two answers to that. One, um, he loved ideas, and he was an evangelist for ideas, and he knew that uh, colleges and law schools were places where his ideas weren't often heard. And he figured that if he had the chance to get people to, to, to hear him, uh, he would convert some folks. Uh, my, the second reason, which may have played more heavily in later years, is uh, you know he loved to hunt and fish. And so if he could get, a, uh, get an invitation to a place near good, good hunting or good fishing, uh, um, and add that on to him. Mm. Um... One of the things that Justice Scalia often fought was the teaching was how law was taught at major law schools around the country. And he thought that there was, you know, um, originalism wasn't taught, textualism wasn't taught, and he fought against that pretty much his whole career. Uh, since he started fighting that battle and then since his passing, do you think it's gotten better? Uh, can you can you get that kind of education when you go to law school? Well, my impression is that things have gotten somewhat better. Uh, he used to observe that the um, traditional law school curriculum, especially the first year, which would involve uh, courses and things like torts and property and contracts, just um, imbued the, 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 the notion of the common law judge, um, you know, someone who's just making, who's, who's, developing principles out of the ether rather than reading statutes or, or, or constitutional texts and trying to figure out what it means. And that this whole approach um, predisposed law students against um, textualism and also made them think of the, 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 the great judge as the, 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 the person who could just uh, you know, make up these grand principles. My impression is that there are a lot more um, courses in, uh, say, uh, statutory methodology um, than there were when I was in law school. Um, I, 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 think, I think textual analysis is taken far more seriously. Uh, that said, when it comes to constitutional law, 
uh, I think the law schools are, you know, perhaps bend even further to the left than they did uh, 30 years ago. There, yes, there are a handful of um, originalists, uh, but not many. And uh, it's going to be difficult for, um, say, a conservative originalist with the most, you know, distinguished um, resume to get a job um, at a top law school, whereas um, someone with a living constitutionalist uh, view um, will, um, uh, you know, be readily accepted. So uh, I, I think the, he would still have um, lots of reasons to be disappointed and in some ways more disappointed with the state of law schools, though there, there are some uh, improvements in some places. Yeah, to follow up on that, uh, he used to go around and there are multiple speeches people can look up on YouTube with him debating or talking to uh, Justice Breyer. And they clearly disagreed uh, about, I, th I think they agreed pretty much on 90% of the things. It was the 10% that they always talked about, but maybe I'm wrong, but uh, that's the feeling I got. Uh, but Justice Breyer, once I, I think I heard him say that what makes the best judges is not having an adherence is not adhering to a strict ideology or a strict uh, interpretation of the law. Uh, I, I have a, I have a feeling that you disagree, but uh, does he have a point? Well, you know, some of this may come down to terms, but um, no, I don't think he does. I mean, uh, I think there's a French term bricolage for someone who can just, you know, take different things and put them together in whatever fashion he wants to, to reach a certain result. And that, I think, captures um, Justice Breyer. Uh, if you don't um, have um, a principles and a methodology, and instead you just have all these tools you can use, you know, here's a hammer, here's a set of pliers, um, you know, when do you use them? Well, maybe you have good judgment in how you, you know, maybe your intuitive sense tells you how, but you need to be able to, to over time, to spell that out and explain it. Uh, otherwise, um, there's a temptation to just use the tools that will get you the result uh, you want. So I, I actually think Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia disagreed a lot more than 10%. I mean, Justice Breyer, uh, whose uh, intellect I admire um, greatly, uh, when, on statutory interpretation, um, in, in embraces pragmatism or purpose, purposivism, which, you know, are unconstrained and really um, uh, give the judge leeway to reach pretty much whatever result he wants. And it's interesting that um, uh, a lower court judge, uh, Richard, Richard Posner, who also described himself as a pragmatist, was very dismissive of, just, of Justice Breyer's approach. So you can't even, you know, so, you know, different pragmatists are going to have different views on 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 what's um, what's pragmatic. Now, Posner also was very hostile to Justice Scalia, so I don't mean to invoke him as as uh, any 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 font of wisdom. Um, but uh, no, I think uh, there's there's an obligation on the part of um, um, judges to uh, do their best to develop a methodology and to simply say, um, you know, that I'll just use whatever tools. Uh, makes sense to me in any particular case. I, I, I don't think that um, um, is legitimate. Yeah, uh, one of the uh, interesting things is that 
if I'm not mistaken, it doesn't say in the Constitution that you have to interpret the, the Constitution in one way or the other, right? So uh, it, I don't think it ever preached originalism, nor does it you know, say that we have to make it up as we go along. Uh, why is, again, why is originalism better than anything else? Well, you're, of course, right that the Constitution doesn't have a provision that says read these words to mean what they say. <laughs> uh, uh, and even if it did, someone would say, well, how should we know that we should read that provision to mean what it says? Um, I, I, I think the very fact that it was written, as, 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 as Hamilton explains in Federalist um, uh, uh, 78, is for the purpose of laying down markers. And it presupposes uh, that this will be understood to be law and that uh, folks will um, apply uh, the, the classic principles to determining what the law means. Now within originalism, there are different, different sub-schools and you, know, you, can, you can fight things out uh, among those schools, but the, the basic notion that, that um, written law ought to be interpreted uh, in accordance with um, what it, uh, with its original sense, um, you know, dates well back um, beyond the Constitution to Blackstone, and uh, that would that was the you know the, the world in which the, the 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 framers wrote, and it would make no sense. I mean, the whole the, the whole purpose of a Constitution is to 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 put in place boundaries, uh, and you know the the idea that 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 um, those boundaries you know, somehow could be construed to mean whatever uh, people think later on, uh, you know, strikes me as, as absurd. I mean, even the, you know, some people say, oh, well, there are these, there are these, some, some rules in the constitution and those will construe, construe according to what they mean. But these other things are all just loose standards. Well, look, even the provision that says that, the, that, that, you have, that a person has to be 35 in order to become, el in order to be eligible to become president, what does 35 mean? It doesn't say in base 10, uh, you know, it could be in base six or 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 or, or base twelve. Um, so yeah, the, the Constitution doesn't provide you know specific rules for how it should be interpreted, but it was adopted in the context where the rules were widely understood. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, because <laughs> because of my admiration for uh, Justice Scalia, I. Um, I could talk about probably for hours about all the things I admire, but I will push back maybe a little bit just to ask questions about some of the things that maybe I never got clarification on. Uh, one of the things, and anytime I saw an interview with Justice Scalia, he, uh, when he talked about Bush v. Gore, uh, I never really, he, he would always say the following thing. He goes, oh, that thing, just get over it. And it's hard to get over that thing. It's a, it's a big, you know, what's that? Uh, so, um, well, I, think the, I think the one time, I think the one time he said, get over it was some, uh, seven or eight years, um, after, um, the ruling was, was issued and he was, uh, so I don't know that he, I don't know that he always said that, but, uh, look, uh, uh, you know, he set forth, um, you know, uh, by his vote, and I'm trying to call whether he can recall now whether he wrote a separate opinion in that case. You know, his views of the case, the opinions speak for themselves. Um, 
obviously it was a case uh, that was decided um, on an incredibly tight time frame. Um, you know, there's uh, there's ample reason to believe that 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 um, that he um, you know would have preferred that the um, case be decided on the basis of the I believe the concurring opinion that he wrote or joined. Part of my poor memory, I should know this rather than the um, the the, the uh, majority opinion. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's not, it's not a justice's job to, um, explain, um, outside of his role in a particular case, what a ruling means. And, um, I, 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 so, you know, did he get impatient at some, at some point with, with, uh, being peppered about that? I suppose, uh, you know, I suppose he did, but, um, you know, it seems to me as a sufficient answer to say, uh, look, in this case and in others, um, you know, uh, judge me by uh, what I wrote or the vote I cast. And if you, you know, want to fault me in some cases, you know, credit me in others. One of the things that I've never gotten clarification on is not the decision as much as it is about why they took on the case. Scalia spent most of his life talking about the fact that, you know, uh, if you want something done, pass a law. Right. He always told Congress to do their job. If you want an abortion bill, pass a law. So why not, you know, when deciding the president of the United States or uh, why would they push it to the Supreme? Why would the Supreme Court decide to take on the case instead of telling Congress to do its job? Well, uh, you're taking me into minutia of the case that are out of my memory at this point. But have in mind that um, the court was reviewing a decision by the Florida Supreme Court. So, uh, which um, seemed very disruptive of ordinary uh, procedures. Now, it may well be that that, that Congress, uh, pursuant to the constitutional provisions, could well have um, decided things notwithstanding. But I think that uh, that, that um, the Florida litigation, um, you know, got things going. Um, litigation uh, brought by. Um, Al Gore's campaign and decided uh, in um, you know a very uh, unsatisfactory way by the Florida Supreme Court. Uh, so that's you know again I need to get into more. Uh, I'm not ready to get into deep, uh, deeper minutia at this point on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe to pivot away to something more positive. <laughs> um, one of the. Uh, one of the qualities that people most admire in Justice Scalia is his ability to be friends with people on the opposite side of the aisle, people that disagree with him politically. Um, and I think in, we live in a world now where that's increasingly taboo and increasingly difficult. Um, one of, uh, obviously, the famous friendship he had with Justice Ginsburg, uh, they, they disagreed, but they went to, you know, they, they, they rode camels in the Egypt and then they uh, went to see the opera all the time. And, it, you know, it's it's one they of those and their spouses. Pardon me for interrupting, but they they and their spouses celebrated New Year's uh, Eve together every year for years on end. Um, they had um, a, a real fondness for each other uh, that I think does um, speak to something very special and says something good about both of them. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh Maybe to just well finish the the question, uh, have we? Do you think 
we've lost our ability to be friends with people that we disagree with politically. Boy, it sure seems like it. I mean, I think that um, we have, as a nation, um, gotten very, very polarized. There are topics that um, simply can't even be discussed without um, people getting angry at each other. Um, it's very difficult to to um, explore ideas on things that um, without um, triggering uh, uh, people. So I think it's a very uh, damaging environment, and certainly nothing like the uh, you know rough and tumble in which um, uh, both um, Justice Scalia and uh, Justice Ginsburg um, grew up. And also, you know, you mentioned uh, their friendship, and Justice Scalia was also. Um, uh, very fond of uh, um, Justice Elena Kagan, uh, who um, incidentally, you know, as you know, wrote the foreword um, mm-hmm. to the Essential Scalia, and, and Justice Ginsburg wrote the foreword to uh, Scalia Speaks. And I think, um, you know, in terms of so, so look, I think he loved Justice Scalia loved argument and debate, not for the purpose of scoring points. But in the belief that if that that if you engage in good faith discussion with someone, you'll come to understand that person better. You'll actually learn something. You might reconsider your own ideas. You might recommit to your ideas, but have a better understanding why they're right. Uh, that that basically um, good faith discussion fosters friendship and tends toward truth. Helps bring both people, um, sides of the discussion. Towards um, uh, uh, not 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 to truth, but towards truth. And so uh, he loved um, discussion and debate for that reason. And he especially loved talking with people who disagreed with him. How boring it would be to be surrounded by people who who just who just agree with you all the time, um, or who don't have the guts to 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 speak out and explain why they disagree. Uh, and that has to be one of the saddest things about the the um, the, the modern um, uh, speech environment. Um, you know, people just can't can't talk, and um, they can't talk freely. They can't explore ideas without worrying that someone's going to you know take a a, uh, a a Twitter clip and uh, you know sh- shame them and you know and, into uh, uh, being canceled. So uh, it's a very different environment now. So I think it's a very harmful one. I think it's one that um, that uh, Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg, and I think Justice Kagan would all decry. Yeah, and this extends even further, in my opinion. I think if you watch old confirmation hearings, like the one that uh, Justice Scalia had, um, they were more... Yeah, I think I think what we spoke about earlier um, extends to uh, confirma- confirmation hearings for judges today. Uh, if you watch old confirmation hearings, uh, especially the one of Justice Scalia, you know, people are laughing. They're act- asking actual substantive questions, but most likely they'll they'll vote uh, to confirm the justice, no matter uh, where they fall on, on their interpretation of the Constitution. Um, how did hearings get so political today? And, and in general, how do we get out of this mode, I guess? 
Well, that's a big question. I think you're actually being too favorable to uh, senators that um, Justice Scalia's hearing. The fact of the matter is that um, Justice Scalia was nominated to um, fill Associate Justice Rehnquist's seat when Rehnquist was uh, nominated to become Chief Justice. And the Democrats decided that their best bet was to go after Rehnquist, um, in which case, if they blocked him from getting ele um, elevated, there would be no vacancy in which to, um, to put Scalia. Uh, also, you had at the time a um, significant um, Republican majority in the Senate. And you had um, you know, the first Italian-American justice ever at a time when um, I think ethnic um, politics um, were stronger than at least um, when it comes to the Italian-American issue that, 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 than they are now. Uh, you know, it was only a year later that you had the, the Bork debacle. Uh, and I think the, the most significant thing that, that, that changed in that one year period is that uh, Democrats won control of the Senate in the 1986 election. So the, 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 the deference, a lot of the deference to Justice Scalia was um, tactical, um, very politically motivated. I, I don't think it... Um, uh, reflected a, a, a different time. Um, and indeed, if you look at the Rehnquist hearing at the same time, which got very nasty, I think you'd, you'd, you'd see that. Uh, but look, what's happened over the last um, several decades is the parties have um, sorted themselves out and defined themselves ever more on grounds of judicial philosophy uh, and indeed on grounds of political ideology generally. Uh, in the mid-1980s, you had uh, some very liberal Republicans and some very conservative Democrats. Uh, there aren't many, um, if any, in, in either category uh, anymore. Uh, so um, that means that um, things are much more polarized. Uh, and indeed, what, what you'll see um, in, in every nomination uh, since um, Justice Ginsburg's in 1993, I'm sorry, I should say in every Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing uh, since Ginsburg in 1993, you've had a president of um, one party making a nomination to a Senate controlled by the same party. Uh, and that has, that has actually helped to keep the, um, the heat down um, because the understanding is you maintain, you, you hold on to your majority and the person will get confirmed. Um, what happened in, in 2016 after Justice Scalia's death, when um, uh, President Obama went to fill a vacancy is you had, you had the scenario that hadn't existed in a long, long time. We had a president of one party uh, making a nomination um, to a Senate controlled by the opposite party and in an election year, no less. And this was exactly the configuration that uh, you know Joe Biden um, had had recognized way back in 1992 would 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 lead to obstruction. Biden himself had 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 warned um, the first President Bush not not even to make a nomination in, in, uh, uh, before the election, uh, and it um, made clear that he would not that he Biden would not move on any nomination. So I don't think um, I mean the, yes, there's been some change. Um, uh, it's mostly been the parties sorting themselves politically, but we've actually been uh, um, fortunate, if you, if you, um, you want to view it that way, 
that um, all of the vacancies or all, all the uh, vacancies since then, with the exception of uh, the Scalia vacancy, um, have, have arisen um, at a time when you had um, the president and the Senate under, same, under control of the same party. Yes, but if you look at all these confirmation hearings, I mean, in the last... During the Trump administration, for example, you had uh, uh, Gorsuch to replace Scalia, and then you had Kavanaugh and, at the end, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. These confirmation hearings were forest fires. That's what they were. I mean, it, it, it looked from the outside like it, it looked terrible for, for the United States. I mean, uh, I understand it needing to you know, in some ways, it has to be a show of of uh, of of one kind or another. But it was really bad. Um, I agree, uh, and I think you're right. Um, uh, say to draw a stark contrast between that and say the Ginsburg and Breyer hearings in 1993 and 1994, which I I worked on and, and attended, uh, where um, you know uh, the Republicans. Um, were very, very civil and ended up overwhelmingly supporting um, both nominees. Uh, Justice Ginsburg was confirmed, I believe, 96 to 3, and Breyer, um, 87 to 9. Um, so I think a lot changed when Senate Democrats launched their um, unprecedented campaign of partisan filibusters against President Bush's uh, lower court nominees uh, in, in, in 2003. And then um, uh, went after um, Roberts to some extent, but more especially Sam Alito uh, uh, in 2005 and 2006, including an effort to, to filibuster the Alito nomination. I think, um, but I, I think what's happening at the same time though is the parties are, are redefining themselves, um, sorting themselves on ideological grounds so that you know, a Republican senator who in 1993 um, could say, oh, I'm going to defer um, to, to the president, even though he's a, 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 of an opposite party and vote, to, vote for this nominee, um, had much greater difficulty saying that um, 16 years later. Um, uh, you know, you look at Sonia Sotomayor versus um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, and, you know, I would have been amazed if you told me in 1993 that, that, that 30-something uh, Senate Republicans would vote against the first Hispanic uh, nominee to the Supreme Court. But they did so in part because the political pressure uh, from, the, from the base um, uh, intensified. Uh, basically, uh, Republicans, the conservative base caught up to where the, 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 the liberal base was on the Bork nomination way back uh, uh, in 87. So um, yes, things have intensified. Um, uh, but I think that's really a reflection of the of the um, increased polarization uh, between the parties. Yeah, maybe this is a very general question, but what do you see the future of the Supreme Court being going forward? And uh, are you for any kind of uh, term limits for justices or any kind of changes to their tenure? Well, to start with the, the last, um, look, in theory, I could, I, you know, if I were, you know, czar of the universe, I could see um, uh, some, some rules uh, involving, you know, term limits that 
might work, though we have to be very careful about unintended consequences. I don't see any um, plausible reform that could be done without a constitutional amendment. And I don't see how any constitutional amendment would ever be um, adopted. So to my mind, these things are just off the table. Um, you know, look, going forward, I think we're gonna have some, um, you know, we'll have some fights. Um, you know, I believed all along that the only way th these fights will end up with if, is if one side um, uh, somehow wins decisively. Um, that, that doesn't seem likely uh, to happen. Um, and I think what you're going to have is, um, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if we have a a um, vacancy and what I'll call as a shorthand an opposite party situation. That is where you have a Senate controlled by a party um, opposite the, the president's. Uh, you know, if that happens, um, uh, you know, it's one thing for that to happen in an election year. If that happens earlier in a term, um, what happen What happens? Will will um, the parties um, will there be a standstill uh, for three years? Um, look, there's ample reason to think there might be. Will there be some sort of compromise reached? Well, uh, that's a lot harder. To, that's a lot harder to do these days. But um, White Houses have their their um, political imperatives too. No White House wants to be seen as a failure, not getting someone through. So maybe there would be. Um, you know, some effort uh, to compromise. A lot, of course, depends on the, the, the political margin in the Senate. If you have a, you know, 50, if, you, if you're facing a 55 um, vote majority against you, it's tougher than if you're facing a, you know, a 51 vote, um, just in terms of, uh, of how many you have to pick off. So, uh, yeah, I think we're gonna have more fights. Right. Um... Maybe to go back to the book a little bit, uh, to the books, sorry. One of the, the things I see uh, that I noticed while reading the books is how much uh, Justice Scalia valued every uh, word he wrote and how he wanted everything to either be readable, accessible, and, and inspirational. Um, what would you say the importance of writing and, and words in general to him were? Well, again, he cared very much about um, conveying his ideas clearly. And um, uh, obviously, uh, when you're writing, uh, you know, you, you, you have the opportunity to do so. Uh, when you're speaking, it's, it's more challenging, but you can also do so uh, there as well. One thing that's interesting about his writing is that, um, and I don't know whether he studied, you know, rhetoric in high school, it wouldn't surprise me, but he cared very much how the written words sounded. It's, it, it, uh, when read aloud, it's, a, it's an odd thing, uh, but I think it's part of what made him such a, a, a great um, uh, speech, uh, speech giver, a speech writer, writing speeches for himself. He developed this sense um, of you know, whether it be the rhythm of language, the use of alliteration, uh, the you know, powerful figure of speech. Uh, he, he, he loved to hear how what he wrote sounded. And he would often um, you know, read passages aloud. He might you know, get on the phone and say, Clarence, you gotta hear this. Um, and, and, and when he was really happy with an, uh, an opinion, he would say, this sings. Um, you know, an, an interesting um, verb to use that I think again, um, uh, shows that he, 
that that he, he understood things you know musically. Uh, he 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 heard the words even as he wrote them. Uh, so that's uh, that's very very interesting quality um, uh, to his writing. Yeah, um, maybe on a, a little bit of a personal note, uh, what do you miss most about Justice Scalia? Well, uh, you know, he was always very good to me, and I'm very grateful to him. Um, he was just a, a fun person to, to to chat with. I can see him at the clerk's reunions with a you know glass of wine in his hand and a big smile on his face, um, just just uh, taking joy in uh, the you know the world of clerks with their um, you know ever growing world of 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 of, of former clerks succeeding in different capacities, having their own families. Um, uh, so uh, I guess I, 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 miss his, I miss his joy. Um, he was uh, effervescent and, um, you know, just a pleasure to be around. Yeah. Uh, and if, if he were alive today, and this is maybe a two-part question, one, let's separate this question for you and, and for Justice Scalia. If he were alive today, what advice would he give to aspiring lawyers? And the same question goes to you. Well, one thing that he uh, often tell his um, law clerks uh, is, don't spend your time in DC or New York, go back to your community. Um, that's where you can have real impact. You can, um, you can, live, uh, uh, you know, you can raise a family, you can get involved in your uh, church or um, clubs. And uh, I think he thought that, 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 that too many people thought it was important to be where, that, where, 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 the, where the power is. Um, I'm trying to recall, uh, you know, the, the Scalia Speaks book has a commencement um, address that he gave at a law school um, in the 1980s um, while he was still a, a, a circuit court judge. So there'd be some more specific uh, um, wisdom uh, there. But, um, you know, I think uh, he would say, look, you have one life to live. Um, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't chase someone else's dream. Um, I think my own advice would be somewhat similar. I warn, uh, attorneys and aspiring attorneys against what I call the, the tyranny of the billable hour. Uh, you know, the notion that, oh gosh, it's Thursday afternoon and Billy's soccer game starts in 45 minutes, but do I really want to fight traffic and go out to his, go out to his game? Uh, and, you know, he's not going to notice if I'm not there anyway. And gosh, these two or three hours would, would um, be X hours of billable time. And well, gosh, maybe I can pretend to watch while I'm on the conference call on the side, on the sidelines, just this, you know, just, just this way of thinking about things, monetizing your time, um, which in, in a sense is inevitable, but is also, I think, very, very sad. Um, so um, I, I, yeah, I would certainly say um, beware the tyranny of the billable hour and, um, you know, do what you can to uh, build your life. So there's one that, um, you know, brings you satisfaction and doesn't just have you a, you know, a, a, a highly paid um, uh, servant. That's uh, really good advice. And um, 
I think a lot of people, when they go to law school, especially if they take on a lot of debt, they always think about, you know, they have to pay it off somehow. And they take these kind of jobs because, well, $200,000 out of law school is, is hard to say no to. Um, and you kind of have to say yes to that because, you know, we got, again, bills to pay and, and all that. But on that, um, if, I could, if I could just interrupt, um, there may well be some truth to that. And certainly um, uh, law school tuitions have soared since I was in law school. And I, so, you know, I just have real sympathy for the condition that, that lots of folks are in. That said, there, there are lots of people who, um, whose spending manages to match whatever income they're making. And so uh, if you're in a situation where you um, um, feel the need to pay off debt, get serious about it. You know, maybe you, maybe you um, will have a, um, you know, a roommate or two uh, in a less desirable part of town, rather than your, you know, your 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 own, um, you know, two bedroom apartment, um, you know, in, in in a nicer part of town, um, maybe um, you'll have to, um, uh, you know, make some meals for yourself rather than eating out all the time. Um, you know, maybe you have to watch your other expenses. Uh, again, if you if you're gonna, if you if you're saying you're going into um, a private sector job in order to pay off debt. Make sure you're paying it off. Yeah. What? Where can what? What other career routes can people consider if they're considering law school? Well, look, lots of people become lawyers just because you know lawyers um, uh, can move into lots of other areas and. Uh, uh, law school is so expensive these days that I think it's worth um, having in mind the, opp- the opportunity cost of going to law school and thinking what you could do, not just with the, with, with the, with the money you end up spending, but with those three years of time. So, um, you know, I'm not going to recommend um, grad school as an alternative unless someone really has a passion for it. Finally, getting out, finding a job that, 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 that challenges you. Um, Maybe in, in DC here, it's uh, you know working on Capitol Hill. I think that's something that could be very interesting for people for a couple of years. Maybe it's um, well, who knows? People are going to have different interests. I think teaching um, uh, it would be very very rewarding for a lot of people. It's 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 striking how many lawyers, if they're asked the question, if money weren't an issue, as if you're going to be paid the same amount no matter what job um, you, you you took, what would you want to do? Uh, the answer I heard a lot from my former colleagues was teach high school. Well, you know, why not try teaching high school before you um, incur all this debt and 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 then uh, you know believe that your options are foreclosed. Also, I mean, you can also encourage them to get a law degree and become a high school teacher because that's an overly qualified high school teacher. Uh, so I think, yeah, yeah, but uh, your advice is better than mine. Um, I finish up all my my podcasts by asking my guests two questions, and I'm going to give them up front, and you can answer them in whatever order you please. The first one is, if you have any, what gives you hope for the future? It could be as general or as specific as you'd like. Repeat that, please. I'm sorry. Oh, what gives you hope for the future? And the, the second question is, what are five books on any topic, nonfiction or fiction, that you would recommend to people? 
Wow. Okay. That second one always gets people. So yeah, yeah. Well, five's gonna be five's gonna be tough to come up with here. Um, no, I can give you three right away. Sure. <laughs> uh, I'll give you four. You can read Scalia speaks. Uh, Scalia's on, on the second book of the series on faith, and then the essential Scalia on the Constitution, the courts, and the rule of law. Which, while um, that be appreciated uh, most by lawyers and law students, I think is also accessible to um, to the, the, the general populace as well. Uh, more seriously, um, I would um, I love the the, the the writings of G.K. Chesterton. Um, I think his very short book Orthodoxy um, is, is a very powerful and and, and bracing tonic to um, um, the the, the, the uh, postmodern age, um, the postmodern age that existed uh, uh, back in in, in uh, Britain when he was writing um, a century ago. Uh, in terms of what gives hope for the future. Um, you know, I'm not um, a great optimist for the things of this world. And when you look at, at what's going on um, around us, um, it's uh, not easy to um, to be hopeful about how things will be in five or 10 or, or 20 years. That said, um, you know, it gives me hope. I meet a lot of um, wonderful um, young people um, and, uh, you know, who are, um talented full of energy um a lot of the people i meet are you know deeply um devoted to um their faith i'm talking about people now of different religious faiths but um you know who are uh, working hard to um discern the vocation that they believe um god is calling them to and um i think they're going to be uh powerful beacons um in this world even if they're um greatly outnumbered by uh uh, by the uh, standard um, uh, woke uh, 20 and 30 something. Um, well, with that, uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on to my podcast and taking the time to speak with me. It was, it was a real privilege. Um, I apologize for the interruptions <laughs> a few times, but overall um, it was a very enlightening conversation. I want to put these two up uh, so people should go out and get them. They're, they're uh, incredibly accessible and, and I highly recommend them. The, the one I don't have is called on faith. Uh, so you should get that too. Uh, so thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. All the best to you. Thank you. You too.